Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters. And, what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club. I'm Megan O'Rourke, the magazine's culture critic, and with me today are Katie Royfe, author and professor at NYU, and Julia Turner, Slate's deputy editor. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Megan. Hi. Today we're discussing um, American Wife by Curtis Sittenfeld, who is also the author of Prep and Man of My Dreams. It's a kind of 500-plus page saga about the formation of the character of a young Wisconsin woman named Alice Blackwell, who eventually winds up becoming the wife of the president of the United States. It is also distinctive because it is apparently, or it is, a lightly fictionalized version of Laura Bush's life. Curtis Sittenfeld has described the book as being 85% fiction and sort of 15% drawn from, from Laura Bush's life. But as I'm sure we'll talk about, a lot of the contours of the story really are drawn from, from Laura's wife and her, the man she marries, a kind of rapscallion named Charlie Blackwell, who comes from a preppy family that um, has an enormous, sprawling, Bush-like compound. And a political legacy. And a political legacy to protect is very George W. And um, so, so we'll talk more about that. But what we have before us then is a kind of odd admixture of a, of a book that's in part a buildings roman. It's a story of a woman growing up from a, being a very young girl to, a, a you know, in her in her late years. But it's also kind of a historical novel. And it's, it's not really a Romana clay, but it's got elements of that almost. And the central question for this character, Alice Blackwell, that, that the book begins with is, have I made terrible mistakes? She's looking back on her life and wondering to what degree is she complicit in what others see as the errors of her husband's administration. And Katie and Julia, I was just wondering, how successful do you think Sittenfeld is in her attempt to dramatize that question and, and dramatize the life of this woman? I thought she was incredibly successful. I thought the book is a is a great read. And as someone who's sort of been fascinated with the figure of Laura Bush for the past eight years, I think she's this 
national cipher for a long time. People wondered how did this nice bookish liberal woman teacher end up married to this buffoon. And this is a book, I think, that sets out to answer that question in a way that is sort of less judgmental than other efforts to do so. And I, I think Sittenfeld's answer is no, she hasn't made terrible mistakes. And, mm-hmm. I, and I think she gets there in an interesting way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Katie, turning to our Well, other... I thought, um, I, I agree with Julia that the book was oddly readable. You know, mm-hmm. there is something that keeps you turning the pages in 500 pages of this woman's life. Mm-hmm. A couple of problems I have with this book, and some of it is about how much of it is not fiction and how the way in which she uses reality. But one of the problems I had with it is that she's taking somebody who's fundamentally dull and mm-hmm. unimaginative and sort of limited in a million ways. And in a way, that's kind of interesting mm-hmm. to, to write 500 and something pages of this woman's inner psyche. But the other problem with it fundamentally is is there's, she comes up against the fact that this Laura Bush, as she imagines her, and I think we can really clearly say it is Laura Bush yeah. in many ways, yeah. um, this character, Lindy, is not interesting enough well, to sustain yeah. this question itself. I have to agree with Katie there. I found parts of the book fabulously readable. And Julia, you and I already kind of um, had a, a pre-recording conversation about how fabulous the halcyon. There's a whole description of the of what is basically the Bush family compound in this book. It's, it's situated, I think, in Wisconsin. And it's wonderful kind of satire of wasp kind of pride in making do with very little in the you know best of vacation circumstances. So they sort of proudly announce, oh, you know, there are 30 of us here, but there is one bathroom, you know, and it's just a wonderful, it's a wonderful set piece. But I had the same question, which same issue, which is that fundamentally, this character finally did not seem that interesting. She seemed rather imaginatively limited. And her answer to this question of have I made terrible mistakes is kind of a maybe yes and maybe no. I don't know. I, I didn't see it as being so clearly a no. And I thought 500 pages for, and I'll, there's a quote I want to get us to later. I can't find it right now, but 500 pages for a certain ambivalence is just a lot. And my question, though, is then as I thought about that, does Sittenfeld know how uninteresting her character is? Or did you actually find her much more interesting, Julia? Maybe Katie and I are, are you know. I don't know. I thought she was incredibly interesting. I mean, I think, I think this character, if she were not a thinly veiled Laura Bush, would be less interesting. You Which know? is a f- problem in the book. Right. I mean, that's mm-hmm. sort of a flaw. You're right, because mm-hmm. fundamentally... No, the book is propped up against reality, and I don't, I don't think this is a book that will read well in 2070 or something like that. You know, it, it, it feels like a book to be read at this moment. But that said, I think it, it is this sort of... I think it's interesting in two ways. First of all, I think Curtis Sittenfeld is an incredibly interesting student of passivity. I yeah. think... Uh, Lee Fiora, who was the protagonist of Prep, which I think is her best other book, is this inc- like maddeningly passive prep school student who has these great yearning desires and doesn't do anything about them and is sort of whiny and yet compelling be- because of the precision with which Sittenfeld details her <laughs> adolescent angst. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's a character whose whose passiveness is sort of just part of her. But here, I think you you see Sittenfeld trying to explain how. Mm-hmm. Alice Blackwell got to be so passive, how it is that she ended mm-hmm. up, you know, married to this man. And so that I, I found that interesting sort of in her in her meditation on that question. I like her. I like her point. And she opens with it, I think, that where where 
the grandmother of the Alice Blackwell character, who's this very sort of interesting, bookish, smart, um, and it turns out lesbian woman, it says something like, "We forgive a lot in people who entertain us, or we're mm-hmm. willing to we're willing to indulge the people mm-hmm. who entertain us." And this is sort of Sittenfeld's fundamental explanation for how the Alice Blackwell figure right. puts up with but, the Charlie Blackwell but figure. My, but one of my problems with the book is precisely what you're talking about, which is that she does explain a lot, and she does a lot of these sort of meditations. And actually, on the subject of the grandmother, she says, "Oh, is is my attraction to Charlie Blackwell perhaps related to my early infatuation right. with my eccentric grandmother?" Right. And the problem is that she puts all that in the book in this what I think is a little bit crude like her actual explanations of this character where she sort of like is like here's why I am who I am here's what she does this sort of analysis in the in part of a novel Mm -hmm. that's supposed to be a novel and that's my problem is that this isn't really a novel in certain ways and that those parts of it irritated me and I thought the parts that you're talking about there were also parts that were really good and worked as a novel, but then these sort of explanation passages really irritated me. Uh, Just to touch on something both of you said, Julia, I totally agree. When Sittenfeld writes about passivity, she sometimes has these moments of capturing this kind of like these ordinary parts of women's lives that are undistinguished and not glamorous, you know, and she's very honest. Like there's one line in this book where Laura Bush is like, or Alice, you know, says to herself, I'm, and then I tweezed my eyebrows to pass the time, <laughs> you know, and you're like, it's like the opposite of the like lyrical poetic novel. It's just like, and she is very good at kind of bringing those tiny moments out. But like Katie, I mean, I thought, I thought my main problem with the book is I thought it was badly written and overwritten and badly plotted. And one example is actually that line I was just talking about before when I said she asked this question about mistakes and at the end of the book starts to try to answer it. And here's a little passage that's on page 441 of my book, which is a galley. I I think it's the same. And she's thinking about her life now as a first lady and she's been mulling back and forth about it. And she says, finally, if the life Charlie and I share is prescribed and demanding, it is also privileged and fascinating. We are now and will always be members of a tiny club. And really, my own pleasure in or aversion to our status is irrelevant. It exists and cannot be unmade. And I was like, no, 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 Sittenfeld, you set out to explain what this woman's experience is. And the whole reason for me to read this book is to get some glimpse of what it might be like to be in the White House. You know, and what you're saying, Julia, like what that world. And then at the at page 440, not even page 200, you're going to tell me that your feelings about it are irrelevant. Like this character's feelings about it are irrelevant. That's, also, that's an example, good example of how she maps these she ideas maps out these too ideas crudely. Out too crudely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. I agree with you. I mean, I think yeah. there are some moments that are that are too crude and it's not the most sort of artfully written book in the universe. But I disagree that that's, I felt that that was sort of the character's own unwillingness to hold herself accountable for this. Mm-hmm. I sort of think she, she right. has this but tendency. That's not the to, way a human being thinks like those right. words, the problem with that stilted, like, and now I will right. describe to you right. this sort of essay she's writing here, which is coming out in those moments. Right. I just feel like that's not the way any character I thinks mean, about I their own life, believe, not in those words. I not could believe that, like, Julia, your point is right. Like, I could give Sittenfeld the benefit on the I – mean, part of me thinks, okay, you have to give Sittenfeld the benefit of the doubt. She wants this book to be written like a, a speech at a Republican national convention. It's like it's like that – like, you know what I mean? Like, it's this personal story that's written in this artificial language almost – but A, I don't see the point of it ultimately. And B, I, it doesn't reveal enough to me. It doesn't tell me enough about the consciousness of this character, 
Um, the other problem is while Sittenfeld is kind of a pretty acute psychological observer, she sets up the book so that there are these huge moral and ethical questions at the end that I thought what made prep so good is those exactly what you were describing, Julia, of those sort of passivity, the student of a certain kind of psychology. Sittenfeld is not an agile moral thinker. She's just leaden. And she should, this is not the right kind of – what's best about the book is the sort of set pieces of storytelling that well, she lets herself engage stuff. in. I mean what you're talking the about, the theme that was so great in the compound and what she was so good at also in prep was right. the uh, the minute observations of these class stories. Yeah. We and should in find a way, one this of those is a class quote, story. There's, some great, there's actually like some funny Prep stuff was there. a class story. I mean, fundamentally, what that story was about was well, social class, and, and so is this one. And that on that subject, I think she's an incredibly acute observer, and she yes. and those parts are interesting. Right. It's and just why didn't she? Why did she turn it into this other book? This book? Well, that's yeah. what's so weird about the book is you read that part of it, and you're like, this is your book. This is your book. Like, what would it be like to be Laura Bush of this class and be kind of bookish and be around right. the like Urwasp family. That, wow, now that stuff is pretty interesting and I liked that. And Julia, you and I talked about it. But then she has to make it, she gets all tripped over her own shoelaces as a writer when she's like, oh, no, 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 it has to be about these huge moral and ethical questions. And are you complicit if you're the wife of a leader? Which is actually not really Sittenfeld's wheel. It's not in her wheelhouse to, to take that on. And, I agree. With any yeah. I think the questions are linked. I don't know. I didn't see that as a moral question. Is, is she. Mm-hmm. I, I think the character is asking herself the moral question because that's sort of out in the air. It's sort of like, who, who is this woman? Mm-hmm. Well, how has she allowed this to happen? But I don't think the character herself feels it as a moral question. I think she's trying to explain her own lived experience. I mean, I, I, I did think well, the fourth section of the book is, the, is by far the weakest. Do we want to explain what the, what the moral... Yeah. I mean, she says, have I made mistakes? I do think she does frame it as a moral question because she says, have I made terrible mistakes? She says at one point... I'll find the quote, but she says something about, you know, how, how com- she asks herself how complicit she is, not in so many words. You're right that she's trying to kind of split the difference, I think. She wants to finally say that, you know, it's not her job. She just loves this man, and that's a private love, and that she is can recuse herself from some of the public obligations that come along with that that private love. That she sort says, of I, I, I just married the man. You elected him. Right. You so gave that's him her power final... at one point. She has a line like that, which is a sort of effective way of explaining that idea. And she says, I could have lived a different life, but I lived this one. But I think, you know, I mean, it is maybe it is true that you're right, Julia, that I see the argument that it's not that she finally tries to take away the moral term. She, she starts with the moral question and tries to move it away from that into a a different kind of framing of the issue of like, am I responsible? How would you frame the question? It seems like she's saying, to what degree am I responsible for my husband's actions? People are saying to me, how could you let this happen? How could you let the Iraq war happen? How could you let these impingement of civil liberties happen? And that's what she's wrestling with in the final section of the book. Well, I think, I mean, the question she says is, have I made terrible mistakes? But I think what she's, as she's kind of recounting her life to herself, mm-hmm. it, what she's trying to figure out is, should I have done anything different at right. any of these points? And she's describing these sort of crux moments. And and in all in every case, she sort of reassures herself that she did that she did what she should have done. Yeah, I think for me, it's not so much that she's she starts with the question, have I made terrible mistakes? But I saw sort of her reading of the, the book as her trying to explain to herself why she's made the decisions she has and basically justifying her life to herself throughout, which is, I think, why it's sort of pat and 
not mm-hmm. sort of this searing moral question. I mean, I think I think what I le- part of why I respond to the book so positively is, you know, maybe it's a book you're only interested in if you're curious about Laura Bush, and I'm someone who is. Mm-hmm. And there have been other efforts to sort of decipher her. Tony Kushner wrote this play that was just sort of ridiculous four years ago in which he envisioned Laura Bush and an angel and Laura Bush was reading <laughs> Dostoevsky, which is one of you know, her favorite author, to dead Iraqi children while like Messiah played in the background <laughs> and she, you know, she's trying to account for her her deep moral failings. And I, I think what Sittenfeld puts forth here sort of interestingly is that not everyone is motivated by the kind of deep political sense of anguish and right and wrong that a Tony Kushner is or that, you know, has been brought out by a lot of spectators of the Bush administration saying, you know, you know, people sort of thinking, how can you live this way in these times? And I think Sittenfeld is saying this, these are not the forces that motivate most people. This is not how people explain their lives to themselves. Here's a woman who is content with the decision she's made despite where she's ended up. And I, I thought that was a much more persuasive explanation. Mm. I think actually having a couple of weeks of distance from reading the book, it may be just as condescending as mm-hmm. Tony Kushner's explanation. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And that that is the one thing about the book that starts to bother me is that I think it's a more persuasive argument for who Laura Bush is, but maybe equally smug. Smug or simple. Well, she also, I mean, the problem with this character, I find, is that She's just not convincing as a character from beginning to end. All the different yeah. things that happened to her, like she actually has a whole interesting part with the lesbian grandmother. And maybe who we should sort of sketch her. out a little bit. And she also has a part right. about how she, which is the, obviously the true story about how she killed her high school boyfriend in a car crash, and mm-hmm. then she feels very guilty about this. And in this moment of guilt, she ends up having sex with his brother mm-hmm. in these sort of like 1980s minimalist novel type mm. nihilistic sex scenes mm-hmm. and then has an abortion, mm-hmm. which causes an her abortion um, that her illegally that her grandmother's lover performs. performs. Right. And the problem is that then she almost leaves her husband in a sort of weird uh, her husband Charlie in a sort of weirdly underdescribed yeah. um, confrontation with his alcoholism that sort of you know somehow we just can't use. get too yeah. involved with or believe in or care yeah. very much about. Yeah. And somehow out of all this, I found lots of the book interesting. And, yeah. and as I say, pa- sort of page turnery, as Julia said, but. It, she didn't ultimately hang together as a character. Like, who is this person? Well, I mean, in a way, when you say you're curious about who she is, this doesn't really help us so much. Yeah. Because yeah. do you really believe in, like, this weird sex well, scene with the brother and then the extreme passivity that you're describing? I mean, pro- my problem with it is that I didn't end up coming out of the book feeling – maybe this yeah. is part of Megan's dissatisfaction with that framing device she uses, which you're sort of saying is not her interest, are these moral questions. But fundamentally – do we believe her? Do we know her? Do we mm. feel like we know anything more about Laura Bush? I mean, it just, I just couldn't believe. Or even believe. Alice Blackwell, the character. Yeah, or even Alice Blackwell, yeah. because I just didn't believe in all these things happening to one person. And she was almost like, the problem with this character is she's weirdly insensitive and nothing mm. affects her. And That's she's strangely very strange. blank she and is blank. numb. She is still and a she cipher. Doesn't ex- she doesn't yeah. react to things in yeah. a normal way. You feel like if you threw a knife at her, she would she would just be fine. Right. I mean, and I she don't was... actually think that's what Laura Bush is like. You know, I think there is more complexity to Laura Bush. And I guess, in a way, almost think Kurt, Curtis Sittenfeld's strengths worked against her in choosing this particular subject, I see why she chose it. She's like, here's a cipher. Here's a woman who appears passive. I'm going to tell the story of her sort of the passive epic. But two things. First of all, 
I thought the young Alice was quite interesting. I thought the weird sex scenes with the brother. I mean, they're of a certain kind of genre of fiction. I didn't think all the writing was that good, but I was like, okay, here's this strange life in Wisconsin that, you know, she has this accident happen where she she kills the boy she has this huge crush on. And she gets involved, I thought, very believably with the brother. But and and at that point, she's she's passive and she's a little bit judgmental in certain ways as a character. But she also has a kind of weird edges and parts of her trailing out. And then later, she just gets quite smug and boring. And she's like, I didn't really want to let my daughter watch Dirty Dancing. But then I did. And then this brings me to my main problem with the book, which is that there are like two paragraphs about what the character thinks of Dirty Dancing that are quite repetitive and boring cultural criticism. <laughs> And then she gets to the point where she's like, George reforms, you know, he stops drinking. Okay, Charlie reforms. And then there's like one sentence where she says, and then he ran for governor and won. And mm-hmm. you're like, okay, two paragraphs about dirty dancing and one sentence about running for governor? Like the, the plotting, the mechanics the of mechanics this. Like, as a, very as a machine. Well, I was strange, like, this is a machine you know of parts that don't fit together. She does. Uh, you're right. You know? I objected to the two. She does this strange time passes thing, like yeah. a movie where – they summarize the events that happened in 10 years. Like she keeps yeah. doing that in this book in this way that's incredibly clunky. Important things. He gets elected president even, right? Yeah. There's nothing about the campaign. And you'd think, you know, she wrote this slim little book. She just doesn't have space for it. But this is a 530-page <laughs> yes, book or something. That's my problem. Like, surely there has to be a possibility that she could devote just a few paragraphs to his being well, elected I just thought she day. hadn't read it over and edited it. I was like, she just – it felt like a book she just it's wrote. Clumsy. And then at the end it's, she was like, I got to get forward. Structure I haven't gotten plot. to the governorship. Whoops. Yeah. Got to get there. Structure and plot oh, were that very was totally clumsy. intentional. I'm sure it is intentional, but it annoyed it me. Yeah. No, I mean, I think I think the final section is very unsatisfying. I mean, I actually yeah. think the book would be much stronger yeah. if she'd spent a little bit more time on on Charlie's sort of reform, mm-hmm. you know, Charlie's drunkenness and then how he snaps out of it and mm-hmm. then had that be the conclusion of the book and you were yeah. left to sort of feel the weight of the right, future. Because it's the beginning. It's I actually think the courtship between Charlie totally. and Alice that's the most mm-hmm. I like that part. And you totally yeah. understand... Why she falls? Why from him. she falls? Yeah, from him. I mean, she just that she was makes good. she makes the the Bush character so appealing. She describes him as exactly like Bush. I mean, with wiry light brown hair that looks like it wouldn't move if he shook his head, and sort of hawk like flared nostrils that look like they're flared all the time, which give him an impatient air. I mean, she she doesn't give you any doubt that that this is who she's talking about. So I did think the the final section was just kind of an unsatisfying mess, but mm. but I I think focusing on these kind of moments that are key in. Alice's relationship to Charlie as opposed to Charlie's political career made sense. But she also didn't do well on what I think has to be the fundamental question here is that, you know, there's this moment where she almost leaves him Mm. and this alcoholism and that scene, which should be, and this is why I don't think she told the story of their relationship compellingly because I just didn't, she didn't get inside it enough. And Mm. that's what is bewildering because she is a fairly accomplished novelist, Mm -hmm. um, which we know from prep. But she somehow couldn't describe this relationship. I mean, I, you're right. I believe I like that courtship period better than when they were actually married. Mm-hmm. And I really feel like the book sort of just went downhill kind of after that. Yeah. I did think that but first 200 pages actually was quite good. Was a storytelling. It, it works. And it does make you feel like you have a window onto this funny dynamic between the two. And But why she... With and it's also about class, as you were saying. Yeah. But with the... Soon as they were married and when she describes, you know, he leaves for a while and... You know, it's almost like she doesn't care enough about her own life to even tell us. Like, why should we read all these pages about it? You know, it just loses this momentum where she just sort of seems to be 
But my main um, problem is, as you say, I mean, one of the reasons she loses momentum is she's stating everything. <clears throat> and I don't think that the the narrative of statement and analysis for the reader is novelistic. I just don't think it works. I don't think she would have had to made it, make it incredibly self-conscious in some way, almost like Humbert Humbert at the beginning of Lolita saying, here's, but then even he doesn't do, I mean, here's an example of a statement. Here's an example of two things that Sittenfeld does well and badly at the same time. It's in the Halcyon period. Uh, Alice is going to visit Charlie for the first time. This is on page 204. And she does a, a kind of good, funny description of of kind of like class and social awkwardness where it's actually it's going to start on page 203. Charlie is bringing her to meet his parents for the first time. And she says, I had bought a basil plant and a small terracotta pot to give as a hostess present to Charlie's mother, but we were less than halfway to Halcyon when I began to question my selection. The second guessing occurred right around the time I came to understand that Halcyon, Wisconsin, was not, as I had previously assumed, based on Charlie's passing references, a town. Rather, Halcyon was a row of houses along a 700-acre eastern stretch of the peninsula that was Door County, and in order to own one of the houses, you had to belong to the Halcyon Club. Apparently, you became a member by being born into one of five families, the Needlifts, the Higginsons, the DeWolfs, the Thayers, and the Blackwells, et cetera, et cetera. And then Charlie is saying to her, oh, you know, when, when you come here, basically we eat all our meals at the club and and Alice who's you know been raised from a kind of middle class lower middle class family in a small town in Wisconsin says she she says you eat all your meals at a clubhouse breakfast lunch and dinner and then Charlie responds and you can so see George W saying this the peanut butter no bake bars are out of this world and the apple pie it makes you proud to be an american and it goes on and he says and she says but who cooks do you take turns no no there's a staff his voice was casual naturally there was a staff and i tried to absorb this information quickly and invisibly just as i did not think i ought to apologize for having been raised middle class i did not think charlie ought to apologize for or feel self-conscious about his privilege and it's like why does she not just say naturally there was a staff right, period. period moving right on to the quotation i mean it just is all of this kind of so expository blah, 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 blah. and it doesn't it, it feels ultimately very condescending. And that was my ultimate problem with this book. I felt like it was like designed to be a book club book that was like so condescending to the members of the book clubs. It was like, you are stupid and I have to explain (laughs) everything to you. That was what I felt about it. And I I found it really upset. And that was my ultimate problem with it was I just thought there's something so condescending about this, whether she means to be or not. It's like people don't understand my story, so I have to explain everything. And this is what's especially weird, because she's actually quite a good novelist. She is. If you look at prep, it's actually quite a good novel in terms of her scenes do what they're supposed to, her characters, she knows how to make a character. So the fact that she does this sort of like insecure thing of explaining everything in this incredibly clunky, unwieldy way, that's what I do not understand. And I guess you've offered one explanation, which is condescending, like she's trying to translate for a really dumb reader, which is one possibility. It also is, I think, the problem of a novelist taking on reality. Yeah. Where some of this really does lapse into this, the, the problem of where she's not writing about Alice Black while she's writing about Laura Bush. And right. so she's explaining it as she would in an essay. Right. And I can see right here that Curtis Sittenfeld is not a very accomplished essayist. Right. Right. And I think that's true. I think you're right. I think that, I, I think the other explanation is the one that Julia offered before, which is that there's something sort of self reflective <laughs> and 
adult, like there's something intentional in what Sittenfeld is doing in terms of having all this exposition because that's supposed to be part of Laura's character as a kind of, you know, stentorian school teacher doll type. But I think the problem, you're right, I think it comes from not knowing how to adopt, not knowing the best way to figure out what the voice of this character should be because the character is a real-life character. Right, the character isn't really hers yeah. in yeah. some way. And I think I think that's the thing about the book is that the beginning, it's 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 doomed to disappoint you at the end because the beginning offers this tantalizing promise of finally you're going to understand Laura Bush and ah, you can see why she was attracted to George mm-hmm. and here you go. And then, But, you know, Curtis Sittenfeld does not have a direct line into Laura Bush's brain and she can only offer us her best conjecture. And I I do think there is, I think you're right that there's there's sort of the, the several explanations you offered, Katie. And then I think also there's the possibility that she isn't quite sure where exactly the passivity in Laura comes from. She sort of plays with it and explains how it might have played out and how she would have ended up in this fix. But there's a way in which the character is a cipher from the beginning and is her passivity and sort of ability to just absorb the knives thrown at her is presented mm. as so, sort of fundamentally Midwestern or something or yeah. part of her, you know, she just was and just part of this family that didn't mm-hmm. complain. And, and that I found less plausible mm. somehow. Mm-hmm. Well, there are two other things I wanted us to touch on. One was sort of issues of femininity. And, and to what degree is this a book about being a woman and being a wife and the most extreme version of some of the compromises a wife has to make in order to support her husband, you know, especially a wife born in the, a woman born in the 1940s from a more conservative background. You know, to what degree is this supposed to be just sort of an er version of every marriage? And to what degree are we supposed to really relate to? Is that why she doesn't actually get very far in her moral thinking about it? Because she's just sees herself as a wife, ultimately, which I think in part is what she does say. And the other thing is, Let's talk about this also as a book about politics and to what degree one thing that I found interesting about the book and sometimes frustrating was that I thought, I wonder what it would be like if you, on the one hand, the Charlie Blackwell character is very compelling. But on the other hand, I thought, you know, friends of mine who are Republican might find this book very annoying because there's a kind of liberal there's sort of a set of liberal assumptions that pervade the book that one of which is to be a novel reader is inherently to be kind of morally is to have a kind of moral excellence in a way and and also to be a foreign film goer is also to be excellent like at one point she's like this i dated this man basically because i never had to persuade him to go to foreign films and he was the only there was only one other person like that and you're like really just because you're in wisconsin like you're the only person who goes to foreign i just thought that was condescending too as kind of a you know like uh you know republicans don't go to foreign films i don't know but and small town characters don't except for you know, one out of a, a thousand. But yeah, did you think about, po- I mean, how did you think about the politics in the book? But also what, to what degree do you think Sittenfeld was interested in stuff about like what it was to be a wife in particular? Well, obviously her title lends itself right. to the idea that this is like an archetype. Right. Exactly. Um, well, that was So one that thing. she's writing about this sort of larger thing. I think fundamentally she fails at that. And the yeah. reason she fails at that is sort of paradoxical. The reason she fails at writing about this general idea about wifeliness and conservatism and femininity is in order to do that, you have to be incredibly specific. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the way that somebody like an Updike can write about right. the, cu- the culture paradoxically by going deeper and deeper and deeper into his characters. Into a single and character. Since, yes. Mm-hmm. And Sittenfeld just can't ultimately in this book go very deep into anything. She just stops. She creates a kind of seductive, like kind of readable surface, but she doesn't push into anything. Fundamentally, she's not giving us 
any insight into this kind of femininity or this passivity mm-hmm. or this. I mean, that's the problem. I feel like she chronicled this passivity that you're talking about, but she didn't. She, and you said that too. She, she didn't, didn't dramatize sort of analyze it, it enough. Right. She didn't go right. far enough into it to why, you know. And and that's why, like as you say, fundamentally, her explanations are sort of unsatisfying. Yeah. You know what why I thought? Is she so passive? I thought ironically, it's much better at describing George W. than it is at describing the Laura character. You know, you kind of come out feeling much more like, oh right, now I've seen I've seen a sort of convincing fictional representation of what it would be like to come home to like a surly George W. <laughs> you know, back in the drinking days when he was frustrated with his family and his image. Yeah. Like that, I thought was really good actually. Yeah. But Laura, I still was like, I don't quite get her. Don't quite. Mm-hmm. But she's definitely after something bigger here. Mm-hmm. About and I think wife about being a wife and i think she's also after something bigger in terms of the politics which i just you know it's funny i just she probably doesn't have that kind of mind Mm -hmm. to sort of sit and felt yeah i mean i think she is a very good novelist in a certain way but i think she took on a project that's so very clever um and obviously like part of this appeal which maybe we want to talk about a little bit is the gimmick of it itself which is Mm -hmm. very clever Mm -hmm. but she just didn't she couldn't pull it off because she couldn't think her way far enough into it. Yeah. Right. And part of part of the problem and part of why it's not really a book about the American wife as an archetype, I think, is that she is again the fact that she can't explain she you know, she sort of presents the passivity as this particular quality of this particular woman who isn't anxious about marriage the way her other friends from her same small town in the same Midwest Western region are. You know, she's in part because she's just not anxious about anything. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, nothing works this character up into any well, kind of except like... for one thing at the end of the book. And this is the other weird thing about the structure of the book is at the end of the book there is this crisis. But you're at page five hundred and thirty. Yeah, but then she's like, and, eh, here's and the my crisis in the here. Dark. Okay, I guess it's not well, such a right. crisis. Well, we should talk about the crisis for a second. The crisis is that there is this guy named Edgar Franklin who had a son who is in Iraq who dies. And he has been protesting outside of the White House, much the way that Cindy Sheehan protested the war. And he won't leave. And everyone's been saying to the Bushes or to the Blackwells, don't go engage with this person. You know, you have to shut him out. And But many of, of Alice's friends are calling her, writing to her and basically saying, how can you ignore? She's getting this feeling of how can you ignore this person, this human being? And there's a kind of crisis where it, it seems for a moment we're on the cusp of a, a wonderful sort of fest shift, a sort of um, event celebrating Alice's contributions to, you know, education and literacy and so on. And it's going to be a gala in her honor that night. But that day they get news or the day before, I can't remember, they get news that that basically the woman who gave her an abortion many years ago is about to come out and say, oh, she had an abortion and, you know. You know, and that this would be a huge scandal. So, they, the, so that the uh, the fixers and the handlers have to go to work trying to suppress this information from coming out. It ends up not coming out through a kind of Deus Ex Machina event that takes place. But as a result, the sort of shaken Alice revisits a friend of hers from many years ago, her best friend who had dated the boy that she accidentally killed, and then decides, on top of that, that she's going to talk to this Edgar Franklin. You know, she's just going to pull up beside him in the car, which, of course, doesn't really work. But she she does end up inviting him into the car and talks to him and then says to him, he's pressing her and pressing her on, you know, how can you stand by and let your husband do this? And she's hems and haws. And then finally she says, you're right. I think we should bring this troops home. And, of course, two minutes later, it's on CNN. She she mistakenly thinks she can have a private conversation with him. But, of course, two minutes later, it's on CNN. And I think part of the end of the book, too, and I think one of the problems with the book is suddenly – 
we're also we're not only thinking about class, we're not only thinking about what it is to be we're suddenly thinking about celebrity too, and a lot of the last section of the book is about what it's like to be that famous. But it comes, it, it sort of feels like, I mean, I like that you brought up essays, Katie, because it sort of feels like it's like a new essay on a new theme that doesn't have to do with what came before. But I just And wondered, also, you do, kind of don't want an essay on anything in the middle of your novel. No. And also, at f- page 500, it's like this concern about celebrity and the war. Somehow that had to have been like a theme that was there all along. Like, there's just nothing organic to these threads. And again, it feels like, okay, I'm covering the biography, I'm covering the biography, I'm covering the issues. But there's nothing as a piece of art or even a piece of kind of good genre fiction that actually unifies these except for following the contours of life. And again, Julia, I think you're right. I think people who are interested in Laura Bush are going to be interested just for that reason. And it kind of doesn't matter. But, but I think you're right. I mean, what's you know. unsatisfying is also I just don't believe whether or not she addresses or resolves this question of moral outrage may be too much to ask. But right. I don't even believe that this particular Lindy Blackwell, let's mm-hmm. leave Laura Bush aside, ever feels this moral outrage about this war. I just don't get the feeling that Mm -hmm. that is plausible in this character that she has now spent the last hundreds of pages creating. And the problem, like both Megan and I seem to be keep going back to, is the different episodes don't hang together Mm -hmm. as a psychologically convincing person, that Mm -hmm. we just don't believe this person could be the person on page 203, can be the person on page 441. Mm -hmm. And, And that outrage, I just... It seems so. It seems like a device that she's choosing to like slap on this book um, because I don't really mm. believe that she cares about the guy talking or his son or you know she seems just the way she talks about everything. She seems um, it's very hard to think this character cares about anything. And I mean, I think it's a little bit fascinating as a portrait of passivity or as somebody who's so unresponsive and mm-hmm. insensitive to the world mm-hmm. that it's almost mesmerizing. Mm-hmm. Like, how can you not react as you mm-hmm. keep feeling like right. taking mm-hmm. her and like shaking her shoulders? Mm-hmm. And what is that person right. like? And Laura Bush does sort of project some of yeah, that in public. Does. But and maybe that's what this person is like. It's just can you stand to be in her company yeah. for this many pages? And do you believe in this as a real person? And I yeah. just feel like the answer ultimately for me to both of those questions is no and no. Yeah. It's funny. I was having dinner with some people who are sort of Texas on the, that high <laughs> social scene in, in Austin and, and know the Bushes. And they were like, oh, Laura Bush is hilarious. And, you know, we're bring, they were bringing up her sort of smoking and drinking. And they're like, she she's a jazz-loving, smoking. She was this sort of smoking, drinking, jazz-loving young woman. And I don't get that from this character right. at all. And I'm more interested in the how did that character become the slightly bland, masked character of the public figure we know today. And one very easy answer is just that there's a private self and a public self and that could have been kind of explored more but one great detail she has in here is that she hates the cat i, love I know that. i did that love that i did love great. that I did like love she it. has this thing that you know she has this cat snowflake that like, just writes books <laughs> their whole book she's like in, in the voice of the snowflake. In the yeah, voice of but then she just like somebody yeah. says what don't you like yeah. you never thought about being first lady and she's like i never thought i'd have to have a cat and yeah. she just the fact that she hates this cat is like such a great comic moment and that's why i think i also love that she had to get um she's it seems sad that this there there are these like brilliant kind of moments. moments. And, and also that thing about moments. how she has to get a facelift, basically, because yeah. the advisors are like, honey, your face doesn't look good enough on TV, which right. I also thought, wow, that's so interesting. I never thought about that. And maybe that does happen. You know, I mean, it probably does happen. No, there's and, a great scene where there's sort of a Karen Hughes character. Yeah. Maybe she, she, she's sort of Karen Hughes slash Condi, Condi. Rice. Yeah. And, and 
Karen, and you know, so sort of Debbie Bell or something, yeah. right? And yeah. she's she's not a particularly she's presented as sort of a mannish woman, mm-hmm. and the the first way that the facelift is is presented to Alice is that is that this, <laughs> this character is like, well, actually, I was thinking of getting a facelift. Maybe we could go I'm get convincingly one. in Mexico together. <laughs> or whatever. Alice is like, hmm. <laughs> and finally, the Carl Rove character, who's pretty funny and who's actually reading. Or he and he and Alice Blackwell talk about Updike at the beginning. Yeah. They're talking yeah, about right. the Abbott books, which is right. sort of funny. Right. Um, and he says something like, "You know, they end up together in the end." He yeah, ends up yeah. back with his yeah. wife. There were some nice details about that, about reading and books and how they played into things. So, um, yeah. Well, Katie and I have talked so much about what we don't like, but Julia, is there anything else that you liked that you that you want to point to? I mean, any details like that or? Well, I think, frankly, you guys are bringing me around a little bit. It's, it's a more disappointing book than I thought it was. I, I, I was just satisfied. I, the question I'm really interested in is sort of, can we place this in a, in a larger context of other books that right. have tried to do similar things to fictionalize right. real characters we know of? And, and is such a project ever more than a stunt? And like, right. can yeah, those give projects an transcend it? Yeah, yes. good question. Norman Mailer, Executioner's Song. Song. Well, that's what I'm Which just reading. Like Executioner's Song now. And it's pretty book amazing. Of all time. It is. It's really one of the great novels However, of the century. Hard to compa- Hard to say. She has to live up to that. But it's a well, great book. No, it's true. I mean, it's a really. But what amazing. does he do thing where he's talking about? Gary Gilmore, the re- this real murderer, yeah. and his experience and his relationship with his white trash girlfriend and everything else that goes on in this in this guy's mind, um, based on all sorts of real research. Um, and he and interviews actually, with and Gilmore interviews, and the people. Um, which he didn't right. do. In t- somebody else did it. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't I know that. I didn't but, know that. But in any event, in its giant book, even more giant than this book, mm. but he really convincingly goes inside the yeah. mind and the voice of this character yeah. to create this amazing work of art. Yeah. And, and, and it is that. It's that the voice, I mean, literally from the first page, it's yeah. like the voice and the language of the character. Yeah, the language like, works as as a sort of artistic language, but it also works completely convincingly as the voice in of this, this, in this person. person. There's also, I never actually finished this book, but did anyone <laughs> read Marilyn by Joyce Carol Oates? I know there were people who liked that. And then, of course, there's Gore Vidal, that sort of style, which is very different, more, satirical. Yeah, it's lower and, brow, so maybe that's a little yeah. closer to this. Yeah, and it might be closer to this. Um, um, and then there's things like, you know, historical books like Robert Graves writing about I, Claudius. But I couldn't think of very many people writing about a living character. Mailer is the great, great example, because even Marilyn, obviously Marilyn was not alive when Oates wrote the book. Yeah, and and then of course there's a slightly different category, but there's primary colors, which is sort of right. more right. the sort of pulpy fictionalized account right. of 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 character of sort of political characters who are right. still with us in right. some way, right? That which is actually more a more com- maybe that's right. the best comparison to this, yeah. And yeah. perhaps that because it was presented as dishier and and mm-hmm. less as trying to be sort of a serious character study is more successful. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I think that's part of the problem with this book. I mean, when I read this interview where, where Sittenfeld said, oh, it's 85% fiction, 15% real life, I thought, well, why that division? That seems like a really weird division. It's like, I'm just taking a little from the life, but then I'm making most of it up. And know? I don't believe it at and all. And I don't believe it. You know, like I just thought that was a weird denial of what she was actually... I mean, obviously the conversations are all made up, et cetera, et cetera, but she's trying to illuminate something about this one relationship and the dynamics of the one relationship. And she's really not changing very much. You know, like, she changes the George Bush character's father from being a president to a governor. Right, exactly. I mean, 
if you, it's just not good faith changing. Like she's not trying to change. <laughs> good he, faith he changing. He buys the brewers instead of the rangers. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> they live in Wisconsin instead of Texas. Right. So you know, she's like, not yeah. trying, but it's not like oh she's failing. She's just not trying to change very much. Right. So, and I think you're right. It's the eighty. It's not eighty five percent fiction. And then when she does change it, things dramatically, it raised questions for me. Why change this? I mean, okay, the abortion <laughs> thing you can guess like that's a plot point in a certain way that is quite interesting. But there were other issues, other moments that were changed or invented that I was like, okay, this raises a set of questions in the mind of the reader that Sittenfeld has to answer successfully about why this, why not that, you know, issues of selection, issues of presentation. But I feel fundamentally the question you have to ask with a novel like this, I mean, like with Executioner's Song or something, is what you said originally is that if this wasn't about Laura Bush, if it had Mm -hmm. no relation to Laura Bush, would we read it? Would we care? Would we like it? And I think the failure of the book is is that you wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Is that its interest is coming? She's borrowing so much of the mm-hmm. interest of this novel right. from Laura Bush's life, and that were it to really succeed on its own terms as a novel, it would have to be because we just in and of itself. You know, what's a great example actually, but this is slightly different. But that book about Henry James. Oh, I was thinking of the Master. In fact, master, I was I was just looking at the Master this morning because I wanted to bring it up. On his yes. biography, yes, very yeah. reliant, yeah. this reliant. Who and he actually says calls him Henry, but James, also which does, is a little more honest. Right, like he doesn't right, pretend right. that he's writing about it's a novelist, toy bin, Frank right. James, right. <laughs> but, Frank Joey. Yeah, <laughs> but so he doesn't try to hide it, and he just writes. Basically, it's very reliant. It draws a lot of its fire from the story, but yet as a work of art, as a novel itself it has its own power yeah and And it tries to it invent i mean it it in it colm toybin the author um proposes that james had an affair with oliver wendell holmes which is probably certainly not documented well if that is the case exactly an affair right i guess right it's a kind of romantic they always get into these questions. Yes. Like, okay. Did they really right. sleep together? together. Like, okay, we're not going to talk about that. Right. Like <laughs> anyway, but you're right. I mean, it is kind of what I was thinking about this morning. It is a work of art. Although I think even that book has some of the que- some of the same questions get raised about how does the interpretation of the life sit with the drama and does it always dovetail? It's a particularly difficult kind of kind of work to write. Well, we should bring this to a close. But is there anything else that? Definitely, you know, if you were going to just dip into this book, the Halcyon section is what I would read if you if you just wanted to kind of, you know, get a taste of it. And I guess I would go back to, like, what we said in the beginning, which is that it is a book that you read. I mean, mm-hmm. there is something – In readable. spite of its flaws as a novel, I do, it is a very readable book. If it had been 300 pages, I would have been much more generous in my mind about it, you know. Yeah, and as I Julia wouldn't have said, minded like the, the first labored writing, you know. I mean, if it just had been shorter and tighter. Yeah. Yeah, I recommend it. I, I still, I mean, I think I think you're right that there are that perhaps it doesn't stand up on its own as a as a great novel, but I think as an interesting in read Bush. about this mm-hmm. political moment, it's a, it's sort of a fascinating. You know, it presents a theory, right? A theory as to Laura Bush, which is that she's this different kind of woman. She's not a woman that that we sort of modern New York women can relate to necessarily, <laughs> and that mm-hmm. she and you know the way she draws that character out better at some points than others, but. It's a theory, mm-hmm. and I was pretty fascinated by it. Mm. Well, thank you, Katie and Julia. In our next book club, we'll be reading David Carr's The Night of the Gun, so please join us for that one. For Slate.com, I'm Megan O'Rourke. Thanks for joining us.